and John. But I am going to read to you um, part of Luke's version of it, and we'll also be referring some to Mark and Matthew for some details as we, as we go on. But uh, this is found in Luke chapter 19, and uh, I'm going to start right at verse 36. I'm not going to read the preliminaries about how Jesus told his disciples to go into town and get a donkey and, and how they put him on it, and he started to ride it. But I'm going to start the narrative when he actually gets into the city of Jerusalem to be presented as the king of the Jews. And that's in verse 36. It says, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and he was drawing near, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. We have been doing a series on emotion and on how to respond to our emotions, what causes them, why God gave them to us. And we've noted several times in this series that Jesus was not afraid to show emotion but sometimes he showed it at, at unexpected times and in unexpected ways. And if you look at this Palm Sunday narrative, you have to think that his disciples are, are caught off guard quite a bit by the emotional response to Jesus to the events of these days. Uh, we didn't go back into the earlier verses, but you probably know that this whole parade into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it's been a very joyous affair. It's been very, uh, a very happy thing. Jesus has been healing people. On the way into town, like the blind man, Bartimaeus, who was begging on the side of the road, Jesus healed him, and he, he kind of joined the parade. Before that, Jesus had been forgiving and restoring people like the tax collector Zacchaeus over in Jericho. That had happened just recently. And all of this is happening, and it's building up a great excitement. And it's, it's, a, it's a joyous occasion as Jesus comes into town. And, and it's not just the disciples here. When it says the disciples, it says the whole multitude of disciples. So this is not just the 12 apostles. This is a lot of Jesus' followers, and they're getting more and more thrilled as he comes into town. It's a happy occasion, and yet as Jesus approaches the city riding on this donkey, for at least some of the ride, he is openly weeping. What a strange picture. And that's because he is looking prophetically into the future, specifically at 70 A.D., knowing the city is rejecting him, and knowing the terrible judgment that is headed Jerusalem's way. But then at the end of the parade, Jesus shifts emotions once more, doesn't he? And we get into this scene of driving the money changers and, and, and the merchants out of the temple, and now he's furious. And you can bet that even before that, when the Pharisees were telling him to rebuke his disciples for these words of praise, and Jesus said, if they don't talk, the rocks will cry out, I don't think he had a happy face on when he said that. I think he was angry. 
And later on, they're going to do the same thing, Matthew tells us, to some children that come in, and they start saying, Hosanna to the son of David, just little kids, and, and the religious leaders try to rebuke them as well, and Jesus again responds in anger. He's angry. He's angry, and yes, we're going to continue our series on emotions today because, yeah, it's Palm Sunday, but it's a good occasion to talk about anger. In fact, I actually, and this is, I'm not kidding, I want you to leave here a little bit angry today. Now, we're going to take a break from anger next week because it's Easter, and anger and Easter just, I couldn't make that work, okay? It's like, he is risen indeed. No, you can't, you can't do that. But for today, we will talk about anger, and then in a couple more weeks, we'll, we'll talk about it for maybe two more weeks. But this anger, I, know, I don't know if you're looking forward to this or not, but anger makes us kind of uncomfortable, doesn't it? Partly because when we think about God being angry, or we think about Jesus especially, uh, God the Son being angry, we tend to picture him as kind of a mild-mannered guy who's always nice to everybody, you know, so why would he get angry? And then part of our problem is because in our own lives, we have very few positive experiences with the emotion of anger, right? It's not something we look forward to or, or relish. In fact, we Christians don't even like to say that we're angry, right? We'll say that we're, we're, we're frustrated, or we're disappointed, or we're dismayed, or maybe we're just down and depressed, I don't know, but, but, but if we're honest, what should we say? You say, I'm ticked, I'm furious, I'm angry, but that doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? And so usually we, we, we couch it in something else, and I think most of us, most of us, not all of us, because yeah, there are some people who seem to like being angry, but I think they're a minority, so most of us sense rightly that anger is a very dangerous emotion. And it is. When you deal with anger, you are playing with fire. When you deal with anger, you are holding a loaded gun. You are dealing with elements that could easily get out of control and do immeasurable harm to yourself and to other people. That's because anger is by nature a destructive emotion. It destroys things. It's also a very effective motivator, maybe even sometimes the most effective motivator of all of our emotions. And when it moves us to action, it typically does its job very quickly, for better or for worse. So it must be handled with care. We better figure out how to deal with it. And yet as much as we like to hide our anger or maybe relabel our anger, we need it. We need anger in our lives. It is a God-given emotion. We didn't come up with it, he did. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, and we'll go there probably in a couple weeks and talk about that quite a bit, but in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul actually commands us in the church to be angry. He says, be angry. And I thought, some of you know that verse says, be angry and sin not. And, you know, when I went to look at that verse and I went to look at the original Greek and I said, you know what, I'm going to find out, I'll probably find out that that word be angry is like a participle or a modifier of some kind. So that what the verse really means is, well, if you happen to get angry, just don't be sinful about it. Or everybody gets angry, it's not a very happy thing, but, but you know, it happens and so watch yourself when you get angry and, and, and don't get out of control. No, that's not what it says. You know what it says? It's a command. It says, be angry. This is a challenge to me, and I want it to be a challenge to you as well. There are times when it is a sin for a Christian not to be angry. Do you believe that? The Bible tells us that God himself is continually angry. Psalm 711 tells us God is a righteous judge, and in the very next phrase it says that he feels indignation every day. 
Now, that is not the only emotion that God regularly feels, but it's right there. It's in his character. It's part of him. How can a holy God not be angry at unrighteousness and sin for what it does to his glory, for what it does to his creation, and for what it does to his people? And of course, then, how can Jesus, God the Son, not also be angry at these things? In fact, if you look at Mark's account of Palm Sunday, you find out that Luke 19, 46, which is actually where Jesus goes into the temple and starts driving out the people there, and he's obviously showing his anger there. But Mark tells us that when Jesus gets to the temple, it's actually pretty late in the day, and so he actually goes, he leaves the area. There's a whole night in between verse 45 and verse 46. Luke kind of puts it together, but Mark tells us that he looked around at everything, obviously getting angry in the process, but then he went off to Bethany, which is about two miles away. It's kind of a suburb of Jerusalem. He's probably staying with Lazarus and Mary and Martha over in Bethany. And so Jesus actually leaves the scene. Now sometimes, what, we, what do we say when you get angry, right? You say, well, just sleep on it, and it'll go away the next day. Guess what? That didn't work for Jesus. This display of anger in the temple courts is no impulsive temper tantrum. It is a very deliberate and measured and godly response to a very righteous and godly anger that did not go away overnight, and it shouldn't have. It had to be dealt with. And it had to be channeled in the right direction, which is also what needs to happen with our anger. Our problem, brothers and sisters, well, we have a couple of them, but our problem is not that we get angry. We should get angry. Our problem is that we don't handle our anger in the right way. Some of us tend to vent, right? We get angry and we immediately think, oh, I better just let it out, let it go, right? In order to let off steam. Usually we end up attacking others. And, and venting is not a godly way to deal with anger. The scripture never gives us the license to just say whatever's on our mind when we're angry. That's not biblical. It's not right. Now, the others of us, maybe most of us, and I, I think I fall into this camp, we tend to hold our anger in, right? We tend to explain it away. We tend to make excuses for the things and the people that make us angry, and we tend to sort of bury it inside. But guess what? That's not a biblical response to anger either. So whether you blow up in your anger or whether you, you bottle up your anger, both of these responses are wrong. And both of them are, are harmful ultimately to yourself and to other people as well. But we're, gonna, we're actually going to talk in a future week, maybe even for two future weeks, about what to do with our anger and how to respond to it and how often we do it in the wrong ways. But today what I want to do is I want to look at our other problem with anger. And our other problem with anger is this, that we often get angry at the wrong things. Or we, we don't get angry or angry enough at the right things. Yes, anger is a dangerous and destructive emotion, but then again, some things need to be destroyed. Think about it. What makes you angry? In your own life, in your own mind, you know, your own temper, what, what is most likely to set you off? What is most likely to get you railing or yelling or reacting in some kind of violence? You know, is it... Is it a personal insult or affront? That's with some people. You know, somebody, somebody attacks you or disrespects you or they talk behind your back. Is it a slow driver who stops at the light when he's in front of you and he doesn't have to stop at the light? Or he doesn't go out into the intersection to make a left turn and leaves you hanging there at the light for another five minutes and you're late for an important appointment? Is it a teacher who you think grades your kids unfairly? 
Is it a referee who calls a foul with a minute and 17 seconds left when there really wasn't a foul and the opposing team gets two free throws to give them the lead? That was totally random. But think about it. Why do we act like that? And why do those things, of all things, set us off so violently? This past week, a basketball referee in Atlanta had to be stitched up because he was assaulted and beaten up by the losing team during a tournament called Love of the Game that was taking place in a church. What is the matter with us? Do we perhaps value the wrong things? Remember, our emotions, and we've said this all the way through this series, our emotions communicate our values. And anger is the emotion that we feel when something we value is under attack or when something we value is in danger of being stolen away from us or us not getting it. It's the emotion we feel when something we value is under attack or when something we value is in danger of being taken away from us. In in other words, a blocked goal. Blocked goals just infuriate us. And I believe that thinking about it this way is going to give us a better chance of evaluating our anger and evaluating our priorities, our values, and maybe even responding to our anger in the best way and maybe even figuring out that we're sometimes maybe angry at the wrong things. Here's a a good example of, of, of how you might have to deal with this. Let's say that you're a parent, and let's say one of your children says something to you that is highly disrespectful. All right, so this is the child says something that no child should ever say to a parent. So you're angry. You should be angry. Well, where is that anger directed? Is the anger directed at the person or at the problem? Is the anger directed at your child or at the sin that has crept into the heart of your child and could poison his relationship not only with you but with other people and with God as well? What are you angry at? And, and the answer to that question may depend on your answer to this question. Which do you value most, your child or your own ego? Because at this moment, both of them are under attack. Which one are you going to defend? And you need to respond to that sin. You do, and your anger needs to be a part of that response. But what form that response takes is going to depend on what you cherish most in your heart and whether you can learn to communicate what you cherish most in your heart in the right way. Because in the end, what needs to be destroyed is the problem, not the person. I think Jesus' emotional responses on Palm Sunday and the day after Palm Sunday here give us a pretty good idea of what's most important to him. Uh, Luke doesn't have this word, but the other Gospels do. The word Hosanna is obviously a Palm Sunday word. You know that, and it's it's the word that that people were shouting to Jesus as he came into town. That is a very common expression of praise. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. But it also has a meaning. It has a very specific meaning. Hosanna means Lord, save. Lord, save. So what the people are effectively saying, shouting at Jesus here as he rides into Jerusalem on this donkey, was basically this, praise God, our salvation is finally here. Here it is, it's been thousands of years. It was promised to us all the way back since Genesis chapter 3 and all through the Psalms and all through the prophets. And here it is, riding into town on a donkey. Praise God, our salvation is at hand. The salvation of people is why Jesus came to earth. When he was born, it said he will save his people from their sins. When they asked him why he came, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. So when that cry of salvation, that cry of praise for deliverance came under attack and people said, hey, stop saying that, Jesus was furious. He was also furious when the religious leaders not only repeated that sin, but devalued those little children in the process of trying to shut them up. 
And then in the temple courts, Jesus was furious. Because not only were the common people being taken advantage of by these unscrupulous merchants and money changers, but it was happening in the very place where they were supposed to be coming to meet with God to find mercy and grace free of charge. So in a way, they were messing up the gospel. And Jesus was furious. Jesus gets, what makes Jesus angry? Jesus gets angry when anybody gets in the way of anybody else coming to salvation. That makes him very angry. When, when the door of heaven gets slammed in the face of those who would believe. When the gospel is robbed of its power and meaning through false teaching, through legalism, or blatant immorality. And you can see Revelation chapter 2 for these later ones. He gets angry. I, I wonder if you and I feel anything approaching the level of anger that Jesus feels toward these things, especially compared to some of the more trivial and self-oriented things that often set us off. So this idea that anger is, is what we feel when something important to us is under attack is, is helpful, I think, very helpful, especially when it comes to revealing some of our misplaced priorities. But in this case, with this particular emotion, I think we have to go a little bit farther with the definition especially when we get into something that we might call righteous anger. Ten years ago, about 25 of us, a lot of the people in this room now, uh, went on a trip to Burkina Faso. And one day, um, we, we spent most of the time in the capital city of Ouagadougou, but one day we, we drove off into what they usually call the bush, which the bush is basically the term for the most rural and undeveloped parts of the country. So we went off into the bush, and, and we were going to spend a night in a remote village where we were also going to be dedicating a well that had recently been dug to give the village fresh water. And as the van in which we were riding approached the village, we were driving on this really bumpy road through a big field with some kind of crops planted in it. And, and it was a field, by the way, that none of our team would ever walk through barefoot because you never knew what was on the ground living around going to eat you, you know. But, but I remember looking out the window and seeing, looking in this field and seeing this little boy who was probably four or five years old, though he looked younger. He had a slightly distended stomach, like he hadn't eaten in a while. He was just standing there in this field, stark naked, nothing in his hands. It seemed he was completely alone. I, I couldn't see another person within maybe 100 yards of him. And he was just standing there in this field, just staring straight ahead, almost expressionless. And I, I don't even think the van made that much of an impact on him because I didn't see him really respond to it. And I remember thinking, as I looked at this little boy, where were my kids when they were that age? They were in decent clothes. They were having regular checkups. They were in preschool. They were being well-fed, and they were being read the Bible every night. They were probably on a community soccer team. When I was that age, I was taking piano lessons already. And I know that I've got a Western mindset, and I, I'm not saying that every kid in the world needs to have all these experiences, but I, you know what I thought? I thought, what are the chances this little boy even reaches his next birthday, and even if he does, what chance will he ever have to thrive to develop the gifts that God has placed within him? And at that moment, I experienced a pretty intense mixture of sadness and anger. And I was probably more sad than angry at the time, but you know what? I probably should have been more angry than sad. I probably should have been a lot more angry because, you know, we in the church are really good at getting angry at things. But when we start getting angry about that, about that little boy and his situation, that's when we start making a difference in the world. 
And we shouldn't have to go to Africa to get that angry. In Davidson County, there are hundreds of kids all around us, and they may not be malnourished. Some of them probably are. But because of their living conditions, because of their family situation, because of their economic situation, no doubt other factors in their lives as well, listen, what chance do they have to thrive? What chance do they have to develop the gifts that God has put into them as his image bearers? And what chance do they and their families have, given the directionlessness and the increasingly post-Christian environment in which they live, to come to a saving and life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ? And why shouldn't they have the same chance that we and our families have? Jesus, when he got to the center of the city that day, it says he looked around at everything. He looked around at everything, and, and, and he came to a conclusion that would drive him to action the next day, and that conclusion was this. This is unacceptable. This is unacceptable, and that's what righteous anger says and what righteous anger does. Righteous anger is more than just a reflection of godly values that are under attack. Righteous, godly anger looks at the evil, the injustice, the oppression, the brokenness of the family, and especially the lack of meaningful access to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it says, this is unacceptable. This has to change. Look, I don't know precisely what it will look like when our church takes the next big step of reaching out to the unchurched and hurting people and families in our vicinity, you know that we're kicking around some ideas and we've already started some things. And I don't know what it's going to look like when, when you or when I and my family and your family take a, a big step like that individually to reach out. But listen, are there not some things in your life that are unacceptable? Are there not some things around you, in your school, in your work, in your family, in your community, in your neighborhood that are unacceptable? Then why do we accept them? Are we just okay with that? And I pray for myself. Because I'm not an angry person. But I pray that God would give me a passion, and yes, an anger, that will learn to line up with the things that make God angry. Because I know that one of the things that makes God angry is the apathy in my own heart. And maybe in yours too. The apathy, the complacency, the self-centeredness, the lack of compassion. All of this infuriates God. It does. Now, that being the case, that being the case, aren't you glad that Jesus got up on that donkey on that day and he willingly rode into that city where he knew that exactly five days later all of the anger that God has toward us would instead be directed at him. Because that's what happened. So that we would not have to bear the eternal consequences that our sinful hearts deserve. See, when the lights go on on that, that realization is both binding and freeing. It binds us to the cross. It binds us to the person who died for us on the cross. It binds us to the one who has saved us and who deserves all of our thanks and all of our praise and all the credit. It binds us to Jesus. At the same time, what Jesus has done frees us. 
It frees us because we are no longer under condemnation. We are no longer under judgment, and there is no need to direct our own anger at ourselves and beat ourselves up on the inside. There is no longer any need to direct our anger at other people out of defensiveness or whatever makes us do that. Instead, we can take the anger that God gives us and we can direct it at the sin that is destroying people's lives and at the obstacles that keep them from finding the salvation that we have been freely given. So, how angry are you this morning? Ready to leave angry? What are you angry at? What is one thing in your world, one thing in your family, one thing in your church, one thing in your workplace, one thing that's in your life, maybe in, in your brain or in your heart or a sin in your own life? What is one thing that you know about right now that is unacceptable? And how long are you going to accept it? And remember, it's not a person, it's a problem a problem that needs to be destroyed. So what are you going to do about it? Let's pray.